0: Good morning, everyone, and, and welcome here, especially to those who are, uh, who are guests or who are visiting with us this morning. My name is Dave. Uh, I'm one of our pastors here. And um, we're working on this series called The God Question. And uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the very first session that we had, we're working, with, uh, we're working through this with our young adults as well on Monday nights. And, um, and during that first session, I asked our young adults uh, in their table groups just to talk about what it was for them. Maybe their, their biggest thing that they struggle with, uh, whether that's uh, an, an area that made them feel like maybe it's not plausible to believe in God or to really trust in him or something that kind of signaled to them that this was uh, just a real challenge for their own faith. And um, one of my friends, she, I asked them to share kind of some of their thoughts and one of them shared um, and she gave me permission to pass this on. She spoke of this moment It was standing at the Holocaust Memorial in Auschwitz, in Poland. And they're face to face with the reality of this incredible evil and this um, immense amount of suffering. That was the moment when her belief in God seemed to just dry up. Was God really there? How could there be a loving God in light of all of this incredible evil and I could see why she would feel that way. Uh, this last week, I read a portion of uh, Eli Vessel's book, Night. Um, he was a prisoner in Auschwitz and uh, Bachenwald. He was a Holocaust survivor. And in this book, uh, he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. In this book, he recounts his experience of being in the concentration camps. And that is not a book for the faint of heart. Uh, I'm happy to say that my friend, uh, has she didn't stay in that place of deep doubt, But her response, well, she's not alone at all. The number one most common reason why people say that they either can't believe in God, the God of the Bible at least, or have stopped believing in God is this exact issue. How could God be loving and all-powerful and yet all this evil around us? Now, we need to recognize right off the top this morning that there are really two different approaches to talking about all of of this, dealing with the suffering and pain. The Bible says that Christians are to weep with those who weep. It doesn't say give them an argument that accounts for evil and suffering in the world. The approach to someone who is personally going through suffering, there's one thing that the Bible says to do, weep with people. It's not to give arguments or, or, or big accounts of things. So you might say that's the, that's the care imperative of what people who are going through deep suffering need. However, that's not to say that there isn't also need to think intellectually and, and, and thoughtfully about the problem of evil, which is an incredibly difficult intellectual issue. This morning, I'm going to be dealing with that one. This is the God Question series, and so we're looking at some of these big arguments and what to do with it, but I need to just say again that giving arguments for why there could still be evil and suffering and a loving God is not the same thing as caring for people who are going through suffering, okay? So uh, that I just want to make clear right up front. As well, we're going to go through lots of different uh, ideas and thinking through them well, and so at some moments, you might be thinking, this has no bearing on my life whatsoever, my encouragement to you be, be patient. Probably something else that will speak to you, but that might be speaking to someone else at the moment. So let's dig in to the problem of pain. Christians believe that there is one God who is all-powerful, all-loving, and is moving history toward a good goal. This comes right out of the Bible itself. In Revelation 19, verse 6, we read these words, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. The King James Version translates that word almighty as omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. That means that God is able to do whatever God wants to do. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26. He says, With with God, all things are possible. But not only is God all-powerful, God is also perfectly loving. 1 John 4, 6 in the Bible as well says God is love. Um, John Stackhouse Jr., one of my theology professors, he says this in his book, Can God Be Trusted? He says, the goodness of God includes both God's moral rectitude, meaning his righteousness, and God's deep concern for and exertion on behalf of the creatures God loves. So the one true God is both all loving and all powerful. And I hope that you can see now why this problem is such a problem. If that's the case, why is there so much evil in the world? If we're asking if Christianity makes sense, we have to be able to sort through this question, at least to some extent. Um, The logical problem of evil, as it's called, goes like this. If God is all-powerful, he would be able to prevent evil. And if he is all-loving, he would want to. But there is evil in this world. Therefore, an all-powerful, all-loving God must not exist. That sounds like a pretty strong logical argument, doesn't it? Um, A lot of people have been convinced by it over millennia. It's it's been out there for a long time, this argument. Uh, But we need to note something. This logical argument against God has largely been abandoned by philosophers. Now, people might still share this argument around, you know, in coffee shops and and that kind of thing, just in conversations, uh, but philosophers don't believe it. Uh, They've recognized that it actually isn't a logical problem in the end, and that was largely because of a guy named Alvin Plantinga. He's a Notre Dame philosopher. He's one of the most well-respected philosophers alive today, and he argues this. Plantinga argues that in order for God to create a world in which people are significantly free, that means where where humans have real choices, God had to give us the potential both to do moral evil as well as moral good. Think of it this way. If I bought my wife flowers like every Friday, and I don't, by the way. Uh, If I did, I'm sure she would love it, but I don't. Uh, Maybe I should start. But say I bought her flowers every Friday, but imagine that buying her flowers was not something, or pardon me, was something I had to do. Not a choice, but if so I was somehow predetermined to always do it. If she knew that, that I wasn't actually choosing to buy her the flowers, would she experience it as love? The answer, of course, is no. Now, God could have created a world, in which no one ever did the wrong thing. But his creatures would have no real freedom, there wouldn't be the possibility of real love either. Robots, pre-programmed, no freedom. But God believed that a world in which real love was possible and real evil was possible was still the best option. And so he chose to create this world. So you see, it's not logically inconsistent for there to be an all-loving, all-powerful God and for there to be evil in the world. But that doesn't mean the issue is solved either. Uh, Philosophers today who have abandoned that argument have raised another one. It's called the evidential problem of evil. And it, it, it goes like this. There is too much unjustified evil, too much pointless evil in the world so that an all-loving, all-powerful God is highly unlikely and therefore does not exist. We need to look at this argument and ask, is it a good one? You see, when we begin to look at this argument, we'll see that there is an underlying assumption that's smuggled into it, and we have to be careful to notice what's being said here. The premise of the argument really goes like this. We, as humans, cannot think of any justifiable reason, a good reason, why God would allow suffering and evil to continue. Therefore, God cannot have such a reason. Do you see the assumption that's built into that? Philosophers have pointed out the failed premise that underlines this point. There's an assumption that if evil appears pointless to me, it must be pointless. If I can't see the point, there can't be one. But do you see the incredible faith that the person making that statement has to have in their own ability to think about things? It's like, I can't think of a good reason for there to be evil. Therefore, God can't have one. Do you see how much knowledge that claims to have? And think, if God's wisdom is limitless, what makes me think I could ever even begin to understand all of the reasons for the suffering that I see in the world? On top of that, even if we humans could understand all of God's reasons, which would be impossible, why should we assume that he must make his reasons known to me? Think of it this way. This is to borrow an illustration from Alvin Plantaga again. Say you're going camping and you set up your tent. That's your tent. And um, if it would be reasonable to assume that if you looked inside your tent for a St. Bernard, one of those big fluffy dogs, you would see a St. Bernard. That would be reasonable to assume. Many people, when they're making this argument about the evidential problem of evil, think that when you look in the tent, the problem or, or the reason should be as obvious as a Saint Bernard. Alvin Plantinga says, "Well, wait a minute. Um, if you look in your tent for noceums, which are, as the name implies, extremely small, that fleck on that person's finger is a noceum. They're, they're, they're these tiny little things, and their bite far outweighs their size. They're, like it just doesn't make any sense how much they can hurt." being so small. But he says this, if you look inside your tent and you don't see a noceum, is it safe to assume that there's no noceum? I said that right? I think I did. And you would say, of course not. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. But some people still assume that if there were good reasons for the existence of evil, they would be as easily accessible to our minds as a St. Bernard, there wouldn't be no see But my question is, why would that be the case? Why should we assume that God would make all of the reasons for our suffering obvious? And in fact, I would say this. I would say there's probably reasons for our suffering that God has that if we knew them, wouldn't be helpful at all. It's a mercy that we don't know the whole big picture because we wouldn't be able to put it together in our minds and it would overwhelm us. Here's the point. Just because you and I can't see a reason for a particularly painful event doesn't mean there can't be one, or that God couldn't bring good out of deep and dark places. But at this point, I'm sure some of you are thinking something like, okay, sure, maybe, Dave, the presence of suffering and evil doesn't logically disprove God, but it doesn't get him off the hook for the world's evil and suffering. Why doesn't God do something about it? You know what? That is exactly the right question. That is. And here's the Christian answer to it God did do something. He personally became a human. God the Son took on the full human experience. And He deliberately put Himself on the hook of human suffering. God isn't distant, but present. The Christian understanding of God is that he himself experiences the greatest agony possible on the cross, and he does it out of love for you. One person says it like this, God is good and he has the scars to prove it. So even though we might not know what our suffering means, the fact that in Jesus, God deliberately gave his life for us tells us what our suffering can't mean. It can't mean that God doesn't love us. God intentionally entered human history, allowed his life to be broken apart to put ours back together. He endured more pain both physically as well as emotionally and spiritually than anyone ever could since he was bearing the sins and the weight of all the world's evil in his own body on the cross, as we read. And he did it for you. And not only did God do that for you so that you could come into relationship with him and have a future hope, God is actually present with us now. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. And he really does. And so we do. We cast our cares on him. We bring ourselves to him. I have known a little bit of my own pain, different than the pain that you've known, but I've known some personally, and God has been there. Not always as I expected, didn't always feel it in the way I hoped, but present, you know what, with time and with perspective, I can see that God was there and he was good, even when I didn't feel it. Now, I want to take this argument um, one giant step further. The presence of evil acts in our world and real suffering is a problem for those who believe in God, but I want to say this, it's actually a bigger problem for those who don't. Let me show you why. Why? C.S. Lewis uh, was Oxford professor of literature at, um, and and he's considered one of the greatest thinkers in the 20th century. He's best known for the, the Chronicles of Narnia series. It got made into some movies. You probably read them to some of your kids if you're old enough to. Our kids are loving them. We're reading them to them right now. But Lewis had initially rejected God because of the cruelty that he saw in life. It was the problem of evil and suffering in the world that made him say no to God. No, there can't be a God out there. But he began to actually investigate it, to really think about it. And he realized that the presence of evil was even more problematic for him and his atheism. Listen to what he writes. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got that idea of unjust? Unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Just take a moment and unpack that. Lewis says the argument we looked at earlier, the one that says there's too much unjustified evil in the world for there to be an all-good, all-powerful God, Lewis says the argument's flawed. Why? Because this argument says that we know there is evil. But how do we know that? What basis do we have for calling evil evil or wicked? If, like, if you say there's no God, then there is no objective way to call something either evil or good. Think of it this way. We could ask, is child abuse wrong? Yeah? <laughs> yes, of course it is. But then we get back to the question, what do you mean by wrong? Like, where do you get that idea of it being, being wrong from? Like, maybe we could say it hurts or we don't like it or that it's unacceptable in our society. How can we say it's it's wrong? Who says So that question always comes back to who says. Um, At Young Adults, the answer I gave my friend who was speaking about her experience, about the realities and the horrors of of the Holocaust, my answer to her was that removing God from the picture actually doesn't help. In fact, it makes it worse. I can't look at the evil of what was done to the Jewish people where millions and millions were murdered. I can't actually look at that and call it evil. See, if we take God out of the picture, it means that it's just what happened. Evil, you see, as a definition, is the corruption of what is good. It's the distortion of what is right. But notice, in order to know evil, you need to know what good is. There needs to be some standard of goodness. Take money, for example. Um, Counterfeit currency is the corruption of what? of the real thing. There can be real currency without there being a counterfeit, but there can't be a counterfeit unless the real currency already exists, right? In the same way, evil cannot exist if good did not exist first. We can only call something evil or wrong based on what we think is good or right or correct. And the Christian view says that it's God's own character of love and goodness. That's what sets the standard of morality. That's what enables us to say something is right or that something is wrong. Uh, In the Bible, we read this in 1 John 1.5. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. This means God's character is the perfect standard of what is good and true and noble and just And we need a standard of what is perfectly good if we're to say something is not good or a corruption of good or evil. See, every worldview, whether it's atheism or Eastern religions or secular humanist perspectives, all of these actually have to give an account for and make sense of the problem of evil as well. So let's just take a few minutes and and look at some of the different ways that different worldviews answer this question. The naturalist perspective, and that's essentially the the atheist view, it says that only what is natural is really real. There is nothing above nature or supernatural. So morals for the naturalist are just individual preferences or socially useful behaviors. Atheists, when they're honest, and, and many of them are, they have to admit that they cannot call what they see or think is evil, actual evil. Uh, The Yale law professor, Arthur Leff, he's himself an atheist, but he argues very candidly that whenever we say that's wrong, the real question is, who says? He argues that unless there is an outside judge, an objective intelligence who calls evil evil and goodness good, Any attempt to say something is unjust or wrong, that's just a preference, or that's just what a society decides for its own self. Here's the really interesting part. He concludes his essay on morality and the law with these words. As things stand now, and by that he means if you take God out of the picture, so remove God, any objective moral standard, as things now stand, everything is up for grabs, There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no good, there's no evil. Everything is up for grabs, he says. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is in this world such a thing as evil. Altogether now, says who? God help us. That's interesting that an atheist ends his article with a prayer. You see, he's passionate that there is such a thing as evil, and we know it. We agree that napalming babies is bad and starving the poor is wicked, but says who? Leff argues that only if there is a God, an objective standard, the unjudged judge, as he calls it, only then do we actually have a real basis. He openly admits that either we can believe this sense that there really is real evil, and good, and love, and justice, or we can be free of God. We can decide he's not there, but we can't have both things. You can't have both. We can't say we believe in evil, or love, or true goodness on the one hand, and that there is no God and a standard for those things on the other. We can't have it both ways. That's an honest atheist. He knows what his atheism means. So when C.S. Lewis bumped up against this problem and he said, boy, I know that there's evil and my worldview doesn't explain it, he changed his worldview. He decided he was actually wrong before and he began to see clearly. And suffering, a human experience of pain, in the naturalist view, it's just chance. It's blind. It's pointless. It's ultimately Meaningless. But atheism, of course, isn't the only view out there. What about Eastern philosophies? They offer a completely different perspective. Eastern religions, um, just for example, Buddhism or Taoism, they generally say that evil is not really, like it's not something to be upset about or to work against. It's just kind of part of the way things are. The enlightened person just has to ride the Tao as one scholar of Religions has put it, and he's not talking about the stock market. Um, the journalist Arthur Kostler interviewed a Japanese expert in Buddhism. He denied the existence of of good and evil. So Kostler asked, you favor tolerance toward all religions and political systems. What about Hitler's gas chamber? The Buddhist replied, that was very silly of him. So just silly, not evil, Kostler asked. Evil is a Christian concept. Good and evil they only exist on a relative scale. So for the Eastern religion, that one in particular, evil, such as the gas chambers of the Holocaust, is not even a category that we can judge. But let me ask, doesn't that view trivialize for you the evil of the evil, or the pain of the pain? You know, I sit with a family who, whose son or daughter is fighting for their life. I don't feel like that view is very honest about what they're going through. I don't think it accounts very well for what we see and experience in this world, and I don't think you do either. In this view, human suffering is not something that we should work to alleviate or address. It's a state of mind to be brought into stillness, something to master. But perhaps the most common way that, um, that you know friends and, and neighbors and, and just that, that our, our society at large uh, views the question of morality and ethics is through the lens that says morals are socially construction, socially constructed. So some people might object to the idea that goodness is rooted in god 's own character and they think, well, why can 't we just decide for ourselves and for our own society what is right and wrong? Uh, this maybe shows up in that kind of popular phrase that you 've heard, you know you have your truth, I have my truth. But how does that view deal with the question of evil? Here's one example I borrowed from another pastor. Um, Winifred Gallagher is a well-known journalist who had fully embraced relativism, the view that there's no objective standard for truth. She would say that all truth claims were just a way to get power over other people. Now, I agree with her in part. Truth claims can be used as power plays. In fact, Jesus confronted the Pharisees who were using the law of Moses not for its intended purpose, but to gain and keep power for themselves. And Jesus addressed that in a very strong way. But Gallagher had adopted the view that all claims to know the truth were simply power plays. So let's look at that idea. When Miss Gallagher was working in, in some African countries, she, she saw women in sexual slavery. She saw women oppressed. And she writes, all of my life I've been committed to the idea that all truth claims are power plays, One culture never has the right to say to another culture what they should do. That truth claims are just a power trip. But then she has to admit, what I'm seeing in Africa, in these countries, is evil. So she went to the governments of some of those countries, and and, and she asked them to do something about what was going on. Here's what they said to her. You're just imposing your Western ideas. You call it sexual slavery. We don't see it that way. Your truth claims are just a power trip. So for Gallagher, she realized that her own perspective had backfired on her. The African governments were saying that her views were a power trip, and Gallagher was able to see through this approach, that all truth claims are a power trip. That's actually the biggest power trip of all. It's the way of keeping women down. She realized that the claim that everything is relative is itself a religion. It's a dogma. It's a power trip and a way of excluding other people. And here's the point. For the relativist, working for justice, calling evil evil doesn't work. For Gallagher, she realized that to say there's no standard for right or wrong leaves us completely stuck. So here's the question. If your premise, you know, that maybe there's no God or there's no objective standard, if your premise results leads you to a result that you know isn't true, then why not change your premise? I asked you that question this morning. Maybe you have the premise that there's no objective uh, way to, to speak about morality, but you know that certain things are wrong. My, my, my plea to you is why not change your premise, like C.S. Lewis did. Christianity says, We sense that there is real right and wrong, good and evil, because we're made in the image of God who is just. So you see, and here's one of our take-home points, the Christian worldview not only accounts for evil, but calls us to address it. Calls us to act for goodness and love and justice and mercy in the real world. See, if I embrace a biblically informed Christianity, I have reason, actually more than that, I have obligation to work for peace and healing, and justice in our world. Now, I know we've spent um, most of our time looking at these philosophical sorts of arguments, but the problem of pain is a real one. It's a real one for each of us. So let's end by just looking at some practical and personal points. First, the Christian view is not just that there is evil and suffering and that those categories are real, and that's important too, but more, suffering is meaningful. It's not pointless. We may never know the reasons why we've had to go through the pain that we've had to on this side of eternity, but that doesn't make it pointless. In Hebrews 5.8, we read that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Suffering was meaningful for Jesus, and it is for us too. Jesus learned to trust and obey and love his Father and line his life up with his father's plans for him, and he did it through his suffering. So do we. Biblical scholar Scott Haifman, he puts it like this, if somehow our suffering isn't just chance, and that is the secular view of suffering, it's just too bad, I'm sorry that happened to you. If our suffering isn't just chance, but it ends up in the lap of God, we can affirm that there is meaningful purpose in the pain that otherwise would not have taken place. He goes on to say this. Many of the people who know God most profoundly are those who have learned to trust God in deep suffering. Though we may never know the reasons why we experienced what we did, that doesn't make it pointless. God promises us this in Romans eight twenty eight: that in all things... Note the word all. That doesn't just mean in the, in the good things that you experienced. That means in the tragic things you experienced, in the things that were totally baffling, in the unfair things that, you, that went on in your life, in all things. God works. He's doing something. He works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his good purposes the good, what is that? Oh, that's a big question. But We actually find that it shows up right in the next verse. In 829, it says that we who love God have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's own son. We are being made like Jesus. I can't tell you what all of your suffering means, but I know at least part of it means is that God is shaping you, and he's shaping me. And it's through those most difficult experiences of my life um Grieving the loss of a dad and, and brother, some close friends of mine. Grieving the loss of relationships that were difficult, unfair things. Those are the very moments where God changed me more than any other time in my life. Where God was working on me to conform me to his image. So we have to see that your pain, whatever it, whatever it does mean, and you may not know all of it now, it's not... Pointless, And that should give us hope, right? You didn't go f- through it for nothing. Here's what I would be, just ask you to consider at least. If with time and perspective I can see that at least some of my pain and suffering God used for good, could it be that he actually has a purpose for all of it? Even if I can't see it right now? If I can see that he's used some of it for my good, Maybe going can use all of it, and I just can't wrap my head around it right now. Could that be? The Apostle Paul writes this to a group of Christians in ancient, the ancient city of Corinth. He says this, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us, they're doing something, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He says pain is meaningful. But he says more. So, what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. We fix our eyes on Jesus, and we just sang about that. Fix our eyes on God, the eternal one. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So God promises two things for those who trust in him. That our suffering is meaningful. That when we place it in the lap of God, these momentary troubles are actually making us the sort of creatures we are more and more like God in our character, and more ready and fit for eternity, but more. We see that our suffering is temporary, that our troubles in this life are not the end of the story. They're not even worth comparing to the hope of the future that we have. I'm, I'm reading the book, The Lord of the Rings, right now. I'm almost done. It's taken me a long time when you're just reading it before bed. It's kind of long if you've read it. Uh, you'll know that. Just after the climax of the trilogy, Sam Gangi, and, and Sam is um, Frodo's faithful friend and traveling partner, he discovers that Gandalf, one of their great friends, the wizard, he's not dead after all, as he thought. Very much alive. He cries out, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The Christian answer, to Sam Ganges question, is yes. Tim Keller, he says it like this, everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. See, coming to embrace the Christian teaching that God became a human, and that he suffered so that we can be healed, that fills with, us with what we need most, a deep and rich hope. Hope that is an anchor for our soul as we read in the book of Hebrews and as we sang about today. God has promised an unthinkably wonderful future for those who trust in Jesus. And he gives us himself right in the middle of the pain now. Uh, Again, from John Stackhouse Jr., he puts it well. In due course, God will end the wretchedness of life in this world as we know it with all of the evil and suffering and pain. And nothing but peace, prosperity, health, and wholeness awaits us. Hang in there, which is to say, as the Bible does, persevere to the end. But the only way to do that is to hold on tight to the hand of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. That is to Jesus. That's the Christian answer the Christian one, to every question we want to ask in the depths of deep pain. So wherever you're coming from today, the problem of pain is always going to be personal. We all have to answer it in some way, both to deal with our own pain, but also to make sense of the world we live in. The Christian answer isn't a proposition. It's not a philosophy. It's not a set of ideas. It's a person. He has a name. His name is Jesus. He is God with us in our pain. He is God for us, for life with him. He's been with me in my pain. Will you let him be with you in yours? Let him be your hope, not only for now, but for eternity. Would you let him be with you? Let's pray as the worship team comes. God, I thank you that your answer to the pain and suffering we see in the world is to experience more of it than any of us ever will. So we can't shake our fists at you and say, you don't know what it's like, God, because you do. You lost a son for us. Jesus, you let your life break apart for us. And we thank you, Jesus, that you were raised to new life so that you can make every sadness come untrue. Fill us with this hope now. And for those who are just questioning and asking, God, could I really trust you? Lord, I pray that you would nudge them forward today, that their hearts would be soft to you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you do a work in them. And if there's someone who needs to trust in you, maybe for the first time today, we, just, we come to you and we pray something like this. God, I recognize that I need you that I only exist because you wanted me to. That I need you because I've been a part of the problem. Evil isn't just outside of me, it's in my own heart, and I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. Thank you for what you did on the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Now lead my life. God, we thank you that we can come to you and find that you are faithful to forgive us, that you are true, and you'll lead us. So do that this week for us. Fill us again with hope. Amen.